Coming live from Mexico City, the capital of Mexico, is our guest tonight. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And before I move forward, may I request you to subscribe, follow, like, and comment on whichever platform you're watching or listening to this show on. And today we have Michael Muir, founder of the Reimagining Politics Educational Project. Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, hi, AJ. Thanks so much for having me on today. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us live from Mexico City and sharing your views. Let's reimagine politics together. And we'll be asking about talking about so many things. You know, you have been studying citizen-driven political innovation in Europe and the Americas since 2017, while teaching university seminars and leading political roundtable analysts. You are uh, events. You are also a political analyst. You are also a writer. And we'll be talking about, you know, a permanent sense of crisis is eroding democracies across the world. So we will talk about this subject largely. But can you tell us what exactly is this reimagining politics and, and that to an educational project? Over to you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I for many years, I've been a political analyst, writer and consultant in the U.S., and I was a co-founder, I was a, at one point a senior advisor to the California Democratic Party, which is the largest Democratic Party in the US, state Democratic Party. And I was co-founder of something called the Courage Campaign, which today I think has 1.7 million members. And I co-founded that with a friend and we built it up to, I don't know, you know, a 300, uh, well, we had like a $1.2 million budget when I left and about 300,000 members. And the idea was to empower grassroots initiatives that were citizen driven. So it was a great experience. And, uh, you know, and then I did political consulting and anal analysis for many years and realized that the being in the belly of the beast, the system just didn't work. There, there's a young political consultant in the US named Walker Bragman, a political writer. And uh, he, Walker says, that representative democracy is neither. It's neither representative nor is it democratic. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's run by uh, high dollar donors, basically. So it's a, it's a bought and paid for system. And, you know, the key is to unlock citizen driven innovation. And that's what I went in search of. You know, in 2016 in the US, we had Trump versus Hillary. And it was so clear to me, I already knew from years of experience that the system was broken. It didn't work. It was controlled completely by donors, large donors mainly. And the, you know, this was the clearest, most glaring sign I'd ever seen. And I left the country. I started traveling, just looking for citizen-driven innovation, looking for projects that people had started outside of parties and for the most part, outside of government. And Frank, I started in Europe, I actually started in Paris. I visited a friend there who was a professor of architecture and urban design. And I honestly did not expect to find very much. It was an experiment. But what I started finding blew me away. There was just incredible, incredibly creative citizen-driven innovation everywhere I traveled. Uh, I, I, I can, we'll get into that. I'll talk about some of the models I discovered. And, you know, the mission became to showcase these, this innovation, to showcase these citizen-driven initiatives. You know, what do you do when you can't get your problem solved through the traditional political system, through parties, through government, and so forth, or when you have a crisis in your community and you have to solve it yourself? And that's where you see real uh, political innovation emerge. And the idea is just to show those models. And I had a few criteria for them. As I, as I started to encounter this, these projects, I wanted them to be uh, duplicable, that you could duplicate the project in another environment. I wanted them to be scalable so they could grow, and I wanted them to be trans, transferable across borders. So those three criteria. And I, I found all kinds of things. Um, I could talk endlessly about specific examples if you, if you want to get into that, but 
that's how the project started. Right. And, right. Right. Michael, carry on. Carry on. Yeah. Well, and then you know the the uh, pandemic hit, <laughs> and politics pretty much everywhere shut down, and you know that that had my thinking had to shift just like everybody else was thinking like what does politics even mean now uh and uh you know i i realized immediately that the pandemic was being used to redistribute money always follow the money it's about the pandemic is yes it's about a virus but it's primarily about the redistribution of money and power upward and i wrote a Right at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a six-part series of articles called COVIDnomics, uh, so tracing the money and, and looking at what was happening just before the pan, a global pandemic was declared. And what was happening was that um, there was the largest debt versus global debt versus global gross domestic product. So total global productivity versus total global debt. There was 323% more debt than, than productivity, you know, global GDP, uh, the highest in human history. And the IMF issued a report just before the pandemic and said, you know, they were basically said all the lights on the global dashboard are blinking red. If we can't, uh, we have to flood the system with liquidity. If we can't do something to uh, alleviate this 48 trillion dollars and un uncoverable debt in the corporate and, and financial sectors, you were going to have what they called uh, GDP, GDP freeze, no GDP lockup, basically, the whole system would freeze up. So it needed liquidity, number one, the system, the financial system was broken, the economic system. And then on the other hand, you had the Verisk Maplecroft, the largest political consultancy in the world, Again, at the very beginning of 2020, before a global pandemic was declared, they issued a report saying that political instability and volatility was the highest they'd ever seen it since they started doing annual studies about political volatility. And they, they predicted political volatility, I think, in 110 countries in uh, 2021 and 2022 for the next decade. They thought it would be a decade of absolute political chaos. Well, with the declaration of a global pandemic, suddenly the system was flooded with liquidity, mainly from the U.S., although quite a bit from the EU as well. But the U.S., within the first five months, Time magazine reported the total stimulus was $20 trillion. At the same time, active political life was just shut down. Stay in your house six feet apart, wear a mask. And, you know, the, the twin effects of this uh, uh, economic shutdown and political shutdown were profound. You know, behind the scenes, all this money was uh, fl flowing into the speculative financial sector, basically, and corporations that had taken incredibly risky bets and were, you know, overwhelmed with uh, with debt. Uh, and we, you know, we basically paid for that out of the public treasury. So the U.S. now has the highest debt since the highest public debt since 1946, it's at $30 trillion. And, uh, you know, we had a, an election in 2020 that was 100% virtual, no in-person politics. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's a profound change. Uh, frankly, I'm still analyzing it. And it's, you know, it's to the point now where these, I'm going to say hundreds of initiatives that I found when I was traveling the world investigating citizens' political innovation, I don't even know the status of most of them. I've, I've got to reimagine the project of reimagining politics and go back and revisit these initiatives and see what they're doing, how they've responded to the pandemic. And, you know, I've shifted my focus during the pandemic to writing. Right. Uh, kind of, a, you know, it's, it's political, but it's more from a philosophical point of view. Like, we have to rethink how we govern ourselves uh, I mean, go back to fundamentals, go back to the whiteboard, as they say, in brainstorming sessions. So, you know, I'm rethinking the project, frankly. Uh, we did, just before the pandemic, we did a big seminar at the uh, National University of Mexico, which was a, a big success. A lot of these 
kids in the class, young people, you know, are, are being told that the world's coming to an end. You know, the, the seas are rising, everything's going to flood, and we're all going to die in 10 minutes or 10 years, whatever the time frame du jour is. And it's debilitating for them. And we told them just the opposite. We said, it isn't going to end. Uh, and right. you're going to have to solve the problem. You're the future. And, you know, we're, we're not here to lecture you or teach you anything really from our personal experience. We're here to show you what other people are doing in terms of citizen-driven innovation all over the world. And they loved, you know, and we, you know, we have absolute, absolute confidence in you to do something brilliant with this information, with these models. And I think that's the way you proceed. I think it's, it's showing people what's working, showing people what people just like them are doing in other places and uh, seeding that sort of political creativity and innovation. Right, Michael. Right. You see, it's such an important uh, way I see the discussion that we are having today. You belong to the world's uh, biggest democracy. And then you move on to another country in 2016. And you're watching right now, you know, in New Mexico, uh, in Mexico City. I am at the moment in the world's largest democracy. And we are trying to reimagine politics. <laughs> you have seen politics from very close. And when you see things from very close, you actually see things in their real form. Politics has always been about, you know, about power also. Yes. And when sometimes it just, uh, and, and people are also a part of it, but several times it shifts towards just power. And that's the, that's the unfortunate part of it. Uh, and then that's why the whole thing called power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's how it comes. And then there are so many stakeholders that emerge out of so, so many places who want a stake in that power. Then that's where that whole corruption of system gets starts getting build, built up. And people become only incidental to this whole state of affairs. And I guess uh, that's the way... Uh, a lot many places are developing that's the way the way, the way things are happening but uh, you have also find uh, you know found the silver lining that a lot of non-government activities are happening and they are doing some great stuff but first from the political point itself what is why do you call that representative democracies today are neither representative nor democratic in several places and and that there is a permanent sense of crisis that is eroding democracy. Can you help us understand this part of it? Well, uh, I mean, when you have when you have a crisis, power tends to flow upward. It's a mechanism for consolidating political and economic power, and I think that's very clear. What you know, what has happened during this pandemic. And they've now linked it, you know, through the World Economic Forum and their Great Reset and so forth. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but they've linked uh, climate change. We need to build back better. We need to uh, have a great reset of the entire capitalist system. Uh, and uh, that's the only way we're going to get out of this uh, uh, current crisis of pandemic and war and uh and climate disaster. And so, you know, you have to step back and say, is the crisis really as, as severe as they're saying? And are the solutions they're proposing the right solutions? And I think the answer in both cases is no. Uh, you know, you, when you exact, uh, it's, it's very tempting when you have power to exaggerate the sense of crisis because it allows you to uh, accumulate more power and it always flows upward. It doesn't flow downward. So I, you know, honestly, I don't know how we get out of this current mess. But I, I think it's, I think it's unsustainable. I mean, you see, the, another thing that's happening is a the emergence of a kind of transnational governing structure. This has been happening for a very long time. You may remember some years ago, like ten years ago or so, um, Uruguay. 
the country of Uruguay instituted some very strict uh, labeling requirements for cigarettes. And they were sued by Philip Morris, the tobacco company. Well, how can that even happen? Uruguay is a sovereign nation. They can, right? They can implement any law they want. Uh, but it turns out that there's all these transnational tribunals, most of many of them controlled by the World Bank. <clears throat> and when there's a dispute between between countries and also between global corporations and countries, uh, a country can be sued and through one of these world uh, uh, World Bank uh, tribunals. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Philip Morris moved their headquarters to Switzerland some years ago to evade liability. And Switzerland happened to have some sort of free trade agreement with Uruguay. And Philip Morris said, well, these packaging requirements showing people with their teeth rotting out and cancerous tumors and so forth, they were, re they were really lurid. And, you know, it's tr uh, smoking started to drop, especially among young people. It wasn't cool and sexy anymore in Uruguay. And so Philip Morris became alarmed. They had a little factory there. They shut it down just to punish Uruguay. Uruguay hired all the employees as uh, health inspectors. <laughs> it was an amusing story, but uh, an important one because it showed how easily this transnational power structure that's emerged could be used to attack a sovereign nation. Uruguay ultimately won. It was kind of a miracle, actually. But what we're seeing during this pandemic is the, the emergence of this transnational structure in a very powerful form, the World Economic Forum, and they're closely aligned with the United, they work closely with the United Nations. There's 30 or 40 global organizations that have, you know, including the WHO, for example, have played a prominent role in the response to the COVID pandemic. And they've made a concerted effort to link it to climate change. Uh, you know, that we, we have to build back better. We have to have a great reset. <clears throat> and uh, that whole agenda to me is anti-democratic. Right, right, uh, Michael. Now, you see, wasn't it always that politics, economic, economy, and business, they were always, you know, uh, very closely associated they needed one another in one form of the other. Uh, that's the way. But when there is a positive cohesion, it leads to the benefit of people. When it goes in a different direction, when everybody starts cozing up and when it distances from away from the people, then there is a problem. Now, even the countries that you traveled, they had their own share of problems they still have earlier on and they will continue. That's the nature of, you know, power structures, the way human beings and that's the way people want to live. Some people want to live in a much more different system. You may call it a communist system. Some people want to live in a uh, much more people oriented system. You can call it democratic system. Uh, it can be free market. In India, we started after independence. We had a mixed, mixed economy. We had government organizations, government companies, and then you had private organizations also. So that's the way everybody decides. As sovereign nations, everybody has a freedom to choose the path that they want to take. Now, in today's time, uh, when you look at the things as today, do you think it will change after COVID? Is it COVID is almost on its way out? There is the talk of monkeypox and several other, you know, different viruses. I, I don't even know how to pronounce them. Uh, but <laughs> but Mar Marburg virus, for example. Right, right. So what about after that? Will it be a pre-2000 COVID situation and the world will be back to a better place or is it that we have made a dynamic shift and where is it moving where are we moving towards as humanity oh that's such a difficult a profound question i think we're all asking it to ourselves and i i won't pretend to have an answer to that i don't think anybody does 
I mean, I, I can speculate like other people. I can make educated um, an, an, an educated analysis. And I, I actually did that. I wrote a pair of articles, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, as part of my COVIDnomics series. I called it COVIDnomics. I, I wrote six articles analyzing the, the, the political and financial um, activities, you know, the shift in power and money upwards. Um, but this, the last two articles in that series were, were asking the question, how does revolutionary change happen? Because at some point, if, pardon me, if the um, consolidation of power becomes too onerous, it literally becomes authoritarian. And there's been a lot written about the authoritarian nature of the new regime that has emerged under COVID. I mean, you see it everywhere. You see the truckers protest in Canada, the farmers protest, both in the US and the Netherlands. Uh, the Wikipedia now has a page tracking the protests. They don't get a lot of media coverage, but they're going on all the time. People uh, you know, have had their livelihoods destroyed. They've uh, been forced into taking vaccinations they don't want. Uh, you know, and now we find out the vaccines don't work and on and on and on. So, you know, I wrote this two-part series of articles called The Present Age, parts one and parts two, asking how does revolutionary change emerge and what do revolutionary leaders look like? Where do they come from? And uh, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. You know, you have to look at historical precedents. And I, I, you know, one of the historical precedents I looked at, one of the first ones, was the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Well, how did that happen? You know, it was a monolithic structure. It dictated almost every aspect of daily life to people. And over a 25 or 30 year period, you had this underground resistance emerge. And they, they were not able to force change. You can't force change. I relied very heavily in these two articles on Hannah Arendt's analysis of revolution. You know, how does revolutionary change occur? And she said that it revolutionaries don't create revolutions. <laughs> she, she said they hurry home to take advantage of the collapse of a regime. And you know that what the way rev, uh, revolutionary change, whatever form that takes, driven by the people, how do the people get power back? When it, when it gets so far out of balance, they have to act. Uh, they can't do anything until the existing regime has just lost credibility. It, it can't enforce its own mandates anymore because there's just a complete, a, a complete utter loss of uh, public belief. They have no credibility at all. And then, you know, if somebody hasn't been thinking ahead about what the new structure might look like, then you have a real problem. You have a vacuum of leadership. You have absolute chaos. You have anarchy. So I think it's important to stay engaged, to stay involved, to keep trying to be innovative politically, to organize to, with like-minded people, and to be ready for when the, what, what Hannah Arendt calls a revolutionary moment. When a revolutionary moment emerges, uh, it can't be, it cannot, you cannot take advantage of it without uh, a well-organized uh, resistance that has, you know, solid leadership, has thought through what the what the changes to the current structure need to be, and has an actual plan. Well, those plans differ a lot. I mean, look at what happened in Eastern Europe. Uh, you had Václav Havel was imprisoned uh, when the uh, the uh, Berlin Wall fell, the the Iron Curtain, so to speak, fell. And like a month or two months later, he was out of prison and he was president. <laughs> you know, that's how fast things can change. But that, that rapid change was preceded by decades of uh, political organizing and political philosophy, thinking, you know, doing the hard work of thinking what the new structure might look like. That, that kind of flew under the radar. Uh, you know, the this declaration that they signed, uh, the, the resistance movement in, um, in Hungary, I believe it was, in um, the 1970s, 
was uh, only signed by 228 people. And it, it turned out to be one of the most important documents in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It has to be a group with powerful ideas that appeal to a lot of people. And so I don't know if that's going on today. I hope so. Okay. Okay. So let's put it, instead of humanity, let's put it uh, to, to people in different countries. What do they seek from their leadership? Obviously, better lives from themselves. But you see, uh, when, we, when you have leaders like the ones that you got dejected with, or the way the system was turning from something different than you thought it was, then is it that people are looking for only that sort of leadership? Is it that the taste of people or the aspirations of people have changed and it is a lack of people's good desire you wish? What you wish is what the universe gives. So is it that <laughs> fault of a leadership or is it the the wrong sort of a, you know, desire of the people as a whole? How do you look at that? Uh, well, again, you're asking incredibly, almost impossible to answer questions. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I do Politics think... Politics is the art of possible. Of yeah, possible. well, you know, I, I taught a university seminar in Medellin, Colombia a few years ago. And it was all uh, upper division uh, political science and international relations students. And I, I started by asking them, you know, well, we're all here to, it was a class on the U.S. political system and U.S. campaigns. I said, so we're going to talk about politics for this whole week. And I, th I think we should start by defining what politics is. And they could, none of them could answer it. They really hadn't even thought about it. You know, they were upper division students studying politics and international relations. Well, it turns out the definition, I gave them several definitions. I said, here, Aristotle says it's a science and it's the most important science because if we don't get it right, things are going to go to hell. And, you know, we, we, it's more important than physics even. We have to learn how Sorry to conduct. Sorry to interrupt, but I guess it has been turned into less of science and more of data science. The more data you have, the more you can influence people's choices, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even the even the idea of politics as a science has been corrupted <laughs> or power has been consolidated with a small group. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but the, the students didn't like that that scientific definition of politics at all. They like Bismarck, as you referenced, you know, politics is the art of the possible. And I said, you know, but there was a second part to that statement by Bismarck. <laughs> he said, you're never going to like what's possible because it's really ugly. You know, it's making right. sausages. And no, you know, if you like to eat sausage, you don't want to see how they're made. It's horrible. So, right. <laughs> you know, so we, we, we settled on a Bismarckian kind of definition of politics and went on with the class. But I found it interesting that th what they really liked, because think about Bismarck and the, the art of the possible, it sounds an awful lot like Donald Trump and the art of the deal. Because, right. you know, uh, Bismarck wasn't guided by any particular uh, strong ethical or moral beliefs. You know, he wasn't going to drive a stake in the ground and fight to the death. He'd just change his mind or negotiate from a different angle. He just wanted to preserve the empire and make it grow. Uh, and you know, that's a very transactional view of politics. And I, I think that that leads to a consumerist view of politics. Well, if we, if we just pick this new product or vote for this new candidate, they promise they're going to change every, well, they're not, you know, so there's been a kind of infantilization that has happened all over the world. I think in terms of political maturity, uh, we've been turned into political consumers. Uh, it's especially pronounced in the United States. I mean, we have these gigantic, I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact price of the last election, but uh, there's a website called Open Secrets that tracks the money. And it was about $14.5 billion in 2020 and another billion dollars minimum in 
quote, dark money that's untraceable. So $15.5 billion for a virtual election spectacle, you know, you and you had, you know, Trump on one hand, and he's basically an uber adolescent. And then you had, uh, you know, lacking impulse control. And then you had Biden on the other hand, who's cognitively impaired. I mean, he's got had two brain aneurysms as a kind of faux father figure. And that's the kind of political life that emerges from a society where for decades, not just a few years, people have uh, slowly given up their political agency to parties and um, media, global media and so right. forth. Uh, you know, and so when I started reimagining politics, I was trying to find uh, innovation that was happening at a much more granular level and innovation that had the potential to, to scale upward in, in size and across borders. It had to be transferable and scalable and duplicable. And I found a lot of it before the pandemic, but now it's anybody's guess. Seriously, I would have to travel all over the world again, uh, doing the kind of investigation I did for three years before the pandemic. Right, 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 Michael. But you see, the good part is that your travels have yielded you positive results and you have found something to look forward to and it's a it's a fine that's what that we are, you are sharing with with the world today through this podcast and through your writings that you are doing on substack on other platforms that you are doing now if you can share with us you know how exactly what are kind of new political models you discovered during your travels your research and which civic projects that you have encountered stand out as having the most potential for being duplicated and scaled across borders because that's the silver lining i can see and once we talk about this then we'll go back to the political systems uh, okay sure well you know one of the one of the most uh, interesting and i thought impactful projects that i encountered was an initiative in it started in madrid spain called uh now bear in mind i didn't travel to india or china you know obviously the the two biggest countries in the world with fascinating histories and really interesting political systems so by I, i'm talking about europe and the americas that's where i traveled here's this is what i found there but i think these projects could be duplicated even in india probably you would know right. better than i but this project was called bibero de iniciativa ciudadanas which means nursery of citizens initiatives and that's exactly what it was it was a kind of nursery for citizens initiatives and it emerged from the atocha train station bombings and I don't remember what year that happened, but it's you know, 2012 or 2018 or something. I don't remember the exact year, but those were the, there were two, there was the Atocha train station bombing and one other that killed hundreds of people. It was the worst terrorist incident in Spanish history. <clears throat> well, the government, you know, declared 30 days of mourning. And then they said, you know, we have to build a memorial to the victims of these tragic bombings and it has to be open to pub public bidding and so they said okay we want a memorial that honors all these 158 or whatever the number of victims was uh and we're putting it out for open bid and a group of students at the national university uh they were studying you know urban design and urban innovation and po politics and, and some of them architecture they got together and said you know look this is an open bidding process. Let's form a company and make a bid. And so they they were very creative. They created a design for the memorial and submitted a bid and they won. Well, they never built anything in their lives. <laughs> so now they have to build this monument. And, and it was a very spectacular thing. It was like 80 feet round. It was a glass cylinder and had a glass brick floor with lights coming up from underneath and in the overhead there was this um it was a entire thing was a screen and the the names of all the victims and comments from their friends were swirling in the overhead that you could see when you were standing inside this illuminated cylinders almost dark except for the illumination coming from underneath and from the screen 
and they they got the the names from having uh, people sign up at all the train stations around Madrid uh, saying, you know, we're really going to miss you, Jose. It was so much fun working on the community gardening project with you or the bicycle transportation project or the helping elderly shut-ins project or whatever. And so what they began to find, just collecting these names and these testaments, these memorials to the victims, they said, look, at they're, they're all involved in political stuff at a really micro level that flies way under the radar. And so they started mapping these initiatives and that led to a project called Civics. And I don't remember what the Civics acronym stands for, but it's basically, uh, there are interactive maps online now. It's all open source, it's all Creative Commons showing these initiatives and they there were hundreds and hundreds, thousands of them. They mapped, they got a, eventually got a 2.7 uh, million euro grant from the Spanish government and they mapped the civic initiatives in every city in Spain, put them in this online mapping system, which I can send you a link to after the show. And uh, and then they said, wow, this is, this is great. Let's start doing this in other Spanish speaking countries. And they came to Mexico, they mapped about 1200 projects in Mexico City, about 600 in Guadalajara. They've been in six or seven other countries. Before the pandemic, I don't know what they're doing now, but I thought, wow, what a beautiful model because you could duplicate this anywhere. And suddenly all these little initiatives that didn't know about one another can go on this online open source map, add their own initiative uh, or change what's already on. Like they've got new members or a new program, they can add it to the open source map and everybody can see one another and they can connect in entirely new ways. So I thought that's a brilliant model. That's a model we can duplicate. On the complete other end of the spectrum, no technology, nothing. I was in uh, Santiago de Chile at, in uh, 2017, I think it was, to meet with the university about teaching a seminar. So we had a big long meeting and we they said, you know, would you like to go to happy hour with a bunch of the professors and talk more politics and more reimagining. And I actually, I was just starting reimagining politics at that point. And so we, we went for drinks and uh, the one of the women sitting next to me was married to one of the professors. Her name was Javiera. And I said, it was an interesting discussion all around, but I, Javiera wasn't saying much. And I said, Javiera, what do you do? And she said, oh, I, I run a project started by the Bachelet government, Michelle Bachelet. So it's actually started as a government project. It's moved beyond that now. So I run a project called Quiero Mi Barrio, which is <clears throat> Spanish means I love my neighborhood. And I said, well, what a beautiful name. Uh, what do you do exactly? And she said, well, very little. <laughs> we, we go into the communities that are at risk. And we, the first thing we ask them is, do you love your neighborhood? We show them attention. We give them love, basically. Do you love your neighborhood? And even in the worst barrios, they say yes. You know, we love it, but it's a it's a mess. Es un gran quilombo. What do we do? And you know, they they connect them to other organizations. They come in and help them with paint and signage and education. And this has swept across the Andes. It's got a, a big website with dozens of examples of Quiero Mi Barrio projects. Well, you could. You know, that's a great little project. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, it can be duplicated pretty easily, almost anywhere. And it doesn't cost a lot. And it's, it's high impact. You know, people are thrilled to have this attention. And they're turning their, the, they have many success stories of people turning their neighborhoods around, building little pocket parks and that kind of thing, building bike paths, uh, helping older folks and after school programs and on and on, you know, it's reclaiming their neighborhood. So somebody showed them some love and attention, gave them a few re, uh, resources and connected them to other people. So, you know, the, the common thread in both of those stories is connection, getting connected to people who want change as well. Well, th those kinds of initiatives were everywhere that I traveled before the pandemic. I mean, I could go on and on and on. There were a lot of them. And once you, once you start meeting these people, they introduce you to other people, and you, you find that it's pretty easy to discover these kinds of projects. My guess would be there's probably a lot of this kind of innovation in India, or there was certainly before the pandemic. But, you know, it flies under the radar. It's, it's not uh, 
It's not high visibility stuff. I, you know, after I discovered all these initiatives, I said, what do, what do, what do we do with these? How do these tie together for some sort of more meaningful uh, overarching change, sort of global change? And I discovered this brilliant professor at Yale. Her name is Helene Landemore. And she's written a couple of books on uh, just basically she's reimagining politics in a slightly different way. She is saying that, uh, you know, represent kind of what Walker Bregman is saying, representative democracy is neither representative nor democratic anymore. And that, uh, you know, the, the key is making sure that citizens are engaged in their own civic life, that they take their civic responsibility seriously and that they, uh, demand real political agency where they have real input and real impact in their own communities. And so she proposed a model in which uh, political service, civic duty uh, was obligatory. It wasn't optional. It was either through a kind of national draft or lottery or, uh, you know, uh, like conscription for the army or something like that. So everybody had to serve. Their time was limited. And, you know, at, at, at some point, this circulates throughout society. And I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is a really interesting day. It's a very, at a very high theoretical level. There aren't, uh, that I know of, there aren't active successful models of this kind of political uh, conscription, let's call it, obligatory civic duty. But it's an intriguing concept. And it, it would be certainly a way to tie in these micro initiatives that I kept finding everywhere I traveled to give them a, you know, a, a more overarching meaning. Like how do, how do we implement Quiero Mi Barrio in our neighborhood? Well, you know, you've got two years of obligatory civic duty. Here's all these models, take your pick, start making change. That's, that's the positive uh, part, you know, citizens can, vote a different type of leadership and the same citizens can come out with different models, different things that are very much workable and much more better uh, than what projects, uh, you know, what the way government would ever try want to do. But in some of the projects here, you can say government is also a participant. So it's always uh, Let's try to look at the brighter side. But one thing has always intrigued me, uh, Michael, is that, you know, in India, we have hundreds of political parties and we have got so many parties even on regional level on our in our states. But in the U.S., the largest democracy, the biggest democracy in the world, why they have stuck to only the two party system? Maybe a couple of years and there, some small parties are there and all, but they're not so prominent to, you know, leave a, such a strong impact. Why has it always been like that? Means uh, I, if there's more challenge, much more, you know, heterogeneity, then perhaps it will lead to much more diverse sort of people coming into politics who will have perhaps not so much of money power. That's another really interesting question because, uh, you know, in the U.S., many of us now talk about uh, the idea that we have a uniparty. You know, we have a Democratic and a Republican brand, but they're the same brand. I mean, there, there are minor changes, and sometimes those minor changes have an important impact in daily, you know, uh, domestic life. But for the most part, it's a uniparty. If, you know, when, when the U.S. said the Ukraine war is our war and we're going to send as much, we've sent $54 billion in arms and aid to Ukraine since the Russian invasion, which, you know, a lot of very smart people think we provoked. And I happen to agree with that. <laughs> I think it was totally avoidable. But, uh, you know, that's had universal uh, one or two senators one or two congress people just a handful opposed it it's basically one party on the really big issues they're very much in sync and the, you know they've consolidated power and it's very difficult to get it away from them and you at the same time that that has happened over the last hundred years in the united states there's been a, 
a kind of erosion of civil association, not, not overtly political stuff, but you know, when de Tocqueville toured the United States back in the 1800s, the thing that he was most struck by, he said it was the key to US democracy, was this um, incredible proliferation of civic associations, not political parties, not civic associations, civil associations. And they, they existed everywhere. I mean, hundreds of thousands of them. And when a community wanted to build a hospital or build a new road or dig a new canal or whatever, they did it locally. They did it through civil associations. And you know, some were bigger than others, obviously, but there was a, a enormous multiplicity of civil associations. And that was the, you had to work with people in order to get these community projects done. And that was where real political training came. That's where citizens became real citizens. They learned to work with people they didn't get along with or didn't even like necessarily for the greater good of the community. It was a really good training ground. And we had a different type of political leader emerge from that, uh, you know, that civil society that used to exist. And that's gone. There, there's a very famous book written three or four decades ago now, I think three decades ago, by a Harvard professor named Robert Putnam. And the title of the book, to give you an idea how old it is, was called uh, Bowling Alone. And we're no, no longer bowling in teams. You know, he traced in detail this, this erosion, this disappearance of uh, civil association as the country got bigger and the wars got bigger and the projects got bigger and the corporations got bigger, power started to get consolidated at the top, people, you know, ceded that power slowly over time. And, you know, these civil associations began to disappear. There's a uh, MIT professor named Sherry Turkle who's sort of re revisited parts of uh, Putnam's analysis. And she says, uh, she calls it, uh, we're together alone. Uh, <laughs> we've got, we're connected by social media, but we're in our little silos. And so, you know, we don't have the connective tissue of the kind of civil society that in the US anymore that you're talking about in India. And I don't know a lot about India's political system. It's fascinating to me because Modi is the most popular uh, political leader, prime minister or president in the world right now. I mean, it's 70% approval. And Mexico's president, AMLO, is second. He's a 65% approval, you know, give or take a percentage point. And so it's, it's really interesting to me because Modi is a kind of a conservative, uh, grassroots, conservative populist, I'd call him. And AMLO here in Mexico is a, a sort of um, left-leaning uh, populist very different political ideologies, but they're both super popular. And I, I think the reason is they both have um, kind of stuck to their guns. They, they have been consistent with their messaging and it's directed towards the people. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how different they both are in actual practice. I don't know how much has really changed, but. Uh, Modi, Modi, Narendra Modi, he's the prime minister of our country and he's, Doing, he's actually, you know, not conservative in thinking. He's very advanced. He's he's much for you know digital, digi digitalization of everything, cashless society, and everything that is modern. He has launched a great incentive in terms of Ayushman Bharat. That's that's in terms of healthcare and all. So you see, India is a huge country, and everybody can look at things from their own different ways. Then, as I said. Uh, regional politics is also very strong here. Regional parties are very strong here. And in many places, regional parties are into power. They, are, they have their own chief minister. So, but the good part is that all views get represented in, the, uh, in, in every corner of the country. We have our problems. As I said, we'll be overtaking China very soon in terms of population. But, yep. but there is a lot of things that we have we have we can look forward to we are moving forward that's for sure and 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 let's now move forward towards your book michael three new books in 2023 tell us about that 
Well, I, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm way behind schedule. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the first book, it's really based on my travel and experience. Two of the books are. And the third book is more like political philosophy. So the first book is called uh, Pachamama Tales. And it, it goes back to when I first started traveling, because before I started reimagining politics, several years before, I spent um, a year in Argentina and the Southern Cone making short films. And, you know, I was really, it was a form of political investigation. Asking a simple question to people, uh, what is America? Because it's more than just the United States. And it has a fascinating history of the, all of the Americas. It, it's America. And it has a fascinating history and a unique uh, position and impact in human history. So I thought just finding people giving unique answers to that simple question, whether it's through politics or art or whatever. So I have this project called Pan American Dreams. And looking back on it, I, it's pretty much written already. It's a series of, of tales, of stories about the, the people I encountered, the, the amazing history of the Americas, the cauldron of political activity that was going on in the, in the nations of the Americas where I traveled at the time. And, uh, you know, and it's a sort of political adventure story because it was, you know, I traveled by every means of transport known to man, had all kinds of catastrophes and disaster. You know, we were stuck in the middle of a desert and it's called the Puna in the heart of the Andes. It sprawls across four nations our truck broke an axle there. We were going to film a project and a political project in the center of that, uh, that desert. So, you know, the first book is, is, is about that set of experiences that lasted about a year and, and really longer because I kept going back and I've stayed in touch with so many of the people and they're very politically active. They, they made it into the reimagining politics project as well, because they've done so much political innovation. And then the second book is, uh, my travel since leaving the U.S. in 2016. You know, and I still am a U.S. citizen. I go back regularly. But, uh, uh, you know, I've traveled through, I think, 24 cities and 14 or 15 countries since 20, leaving in 2016 and traveling. And it's about both the, the personal stories and the political stories. What did I encounter politically? A lot of what you and I have just been talking about earlier and then, you know, the, the things that just happen to you, being stuck in an earthquake, having medical disasters, being stuck in a pandemic in another country. <laughs> and so you, you know, it's a, I'd say I call it a, a new form of writing. I call it, a, it's a fusion of fiction and, and fact. I call it friction because sometimes you have to fictionalize people's names or the circumstances, you know, and so it's, you know, the, the core elements are absolutely true, but it's, uh, that's what those two books are about. One is called Pachamama Tales and Pachamama means mother earth in the Quechua, the early American cultures. And so Pachamama Tales and then uh, from shamans to scientists is the name of the second book. And it's, you know, all about all these crazy experiences with shamans, with, you know, profound spiritual insight to, uh, you know, crazy political adventures and finding amazing projects and, you know, falling in love, falling out of love, just meeting amazing people who are doing amazing things. So it's, I, again, I call the kind of political adventure stories slightly fictionalized. So political friction, let's just call it that. Then the third book is more of a philosophical work. It's called I Feudalism and the Theology of Capital. And uh, it's, you know, that's the most difficult to write. I'm, I've maybe got uh, 70 or 80 pages written. It takes an enormous amount of research. You have to document very carefully what you're saying. And even then, you know, I never feel qualified to write these things. <laughs> it's, it's just out of a need to explain it to yourself because you don't see it being explained anywhere else. It's hard work. And, uh, you know, my when I started writing this book several years ago, uh, I I believe that capitalism had trans, been transformed into a kind of quasi-religion and uh, the, the theology of capital, and that that was really bad 
both economically and politically. And, you know, I, and I think now that's fused with this messianic sense of mission over climate change. So, you know, the book has to be, I have to rethink the book. It's almost, I'm not starting over, but I've got to talk more about, uh, you know, this underlying philosophy has changed dramatically. You know, you know, like earlier when we talked about uh, the loss of this profusion, this incredible diversity, flowering of civic uh, civil associations, we've also lost the, the flowering of economic models, of economic diversity. I, I think in India and I also in Mexico, it, more of that still exists. And, you know, we may be looking at a future that isn't isn't focused so much on the United States. I mean, I, th I do think it's an empire in a state of decline without any question. It's still very powerful. It may, it may last a very long time. You can't ignore it. It's heavily armed. So. <laughs> that's, that's the rule of uh, nature, Michael. It does yeah. not take anything away from anybody, but it's just that, you know, it recalibrates everything. Yes. Like U.S. came into prominence after the Second World War. Yes. Then, then now we talk more about China. Yes. And then, and you India. know, the way, yes. And the way the world is moving, you can be the uh, most powerful person in the world or the most, you know, wealthy businessman of the world. At the end of the day, it has to be humanity which has to survive. Or what will you do with all that power? And all that money inside a cave with a lantern in your hand, <laughs> nobody to, uh, you know, yes, yes, talk yeah. to. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And talking of power shifts, even continents shift. That's the law. That's what we read in geography. If yeah, continents can shift, there is continental drift. <laughs> what, what is power of a nation or a couple of nations? Uh, in front of that. That's the rule. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a period of transition and change. And, and you know, uh, China can't be ignored. India can't be ignored. And, uh, you know, there's there's something else. And I, I think Latin America can't be ignored. Uh, the, the you know, there's something else going on. In Europe, the, the median age is about 45. I think it's even older in Germany. In the U.S., it's about 35. It's about the same in China. I don't know what it is in India. Maybe you can tell me. But we, we are we are we are uh, at the moment we have the uh, most number of working people in our population. So we are that we have that demographic advantage at the moment. Yeah, uh, but you're, having, you're yeah. younger, and Latin America is younger. In Mexico, the average age is 28, and it's 28 almost across Latin America. So right. you know that that creates a different kind of political thinking. It's very future oriented. Right, right. What one thing you gonna I can tell you as we end the show, Michael, is that whatever it is, whatever systems that human beings uh, will be, or you try to bring them under, at the end of the day, if humans are not at the center of it all, it will shift the whole focus of everything. And yes. Mars is Mars is still far, far away. Yes, I I absolutely agree with that. It has to, you know, there has to be a kind of humanism, a human-centered uh, core to your politics, or you'll you'll end up with authoritarianism or dictatorship or something worse. So, you know, I, I regarding the the decline of the U.S. empire, I just published this morning. I saw this. I published a new article called "The United States of Elvis," because I I saw this new Elvis biopic. <laughs> Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I've been thinking about it ever since. It's it's a very flashy, you know, gaudy, technicolor, you know, kaleidoscopic kind of movie. And uh, but he's covering a period in U.S. history which I think has sort of been forgotten about. It's the period of the '50s and '60s when the when the big global power emerged. And you know, I I kind of see the Elvis thing and. Lehrman, the director, the Australian director, tries to tie Elvis's life to the politics of the day very closely, even though he wasn't a very political guy at all. You know, he was focused on his stardom and his wealth and so forth and pleasure. But uh, the um, 
the decline, his decline, I, I almost see it as a kind of foreshadowing the as where the U.S. is headed. You know, he, he died basically, it was suicide. They found 12 lethal prescription drugs in his system and massive overdoses. It was a heart attack caused by that, really. And, you know, in, in, the, in the U.S. as a country, we now have this fentanyl and meth epidemic that, you know, has killed a million people in the last 20 years. And it's it's a it's an interesting parallel to explore. I see I see U.S. as people there. I don't see government here and there. They keep on changing. Ultimately, it's the people anywhere else. Also, in any political system, it's all about people and may the people win. That's yes. all I can say. Yeah, I agree completely. May it's the people of the, the people. world, Absolutely. may the people of the world win. May humanity always win. Yeah. This, with this, it's a wrap on this edition of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining in. We will keep on talking, and I will always keep on looking at new articles on Substack and those three books that are due very soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the for your time. It was a wonderful interview. Thank you.